Welcome to Future Out Loud from the School for the Future of Innovation in Society at Arizona State University. I'm Heather Ross. Together with Andrew Maynard, we bring you conversations with experts on and off campus where we think out loud about our collective future. In today's episode, Andrew and I were joined by our friend, Ed Finn, who is the director of ASU's Center for Science and the Imagination, and science fiction author, Madeline Ashby, who is American, based in Toronto. And they were talking about a recent project that Ed, Madeline, and Andrew were all involved with called Visions, Ventures, Escape Velocities, A Collection of Space Futures. This is a book that was published in 2017 and features technologically grounded science fiction that is based in space. Now, Ed, as the director for the Center of Science and the Imagination, drove this ship, which was uh, funded actually by NASA and inspired and enabled in many ways by NASA. And Madeline contributed a short story called Death on Mars. Andrew contributed an essay based on Madeline's story called Death on Mars, as, in addition to essays that were, um, you know, covered a couple of the other stories in the book. So this was a really interesting conversation. Of course, I'm not going to say that it's a boring conversation, but it was a really interesting conversation about, the again, the ways that we can use science fiction to think about some of the challenges that we face on Earth and how the challenges that we face on Earth and the experiences that we live through impact the ways that we think about science fiction and the ways that we indeed think about science and technology. Before we begin with the episode, as always, I have to thank you for being here with us on the Future Out Loud podcast. We would certainly love to hear what you're thinking. You can let us know by tweeting at us at Future Out Loud, or you can find us on Facebook at Future Out Loud. You can also find all of our previous episodes, including this episode, in places like iTunes or Stitcher or SoundCloud or wherever you find your fine podcasts. If you're not already subscribed to the Future Out Loud podcast, you could do that and then we magically will appear in your podcast queue whenever we have a new episode, which in 2018 we're aiming for about every two weeks just to give you an idea of what to expect. You can also visit our website at futureoutloud.org. You will find, again, all of our previous episodes and opportunities to uh, interact with us visually in a few ways as well. So without further ado, on with the episode featuring Center for Science and the Imagination's Ed Finn and science fiction author Madeline Ashby. Hi, Ed. Hi, Heather. <laughs> Hi, Madeline. Hello. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Heather. It is the new year, and I'm so excited. And that makes this a tiny bit less evergreen, but I can't stop from being excited that it's 2018. Right. We're only two weeks in, I guess. Right. Especially because we get to talk about science fiction yes. today. 
which is why, and Andrew, you were involved in this project with Ed and Madeline and the Center for Science and the Imagination. And a bunch of other people. So actually, Ed was the lead person here. So we should probably start off um, with you, Ed, telling us about the genesis of this project, which ended up with visions, ventures, and escape velocities. I can't even say it, escape velocities. Right, so what is the project? What have you done? What have I done? Uh, so uh, this project started out as a, a grant, a research grant funded by NASA uh, around uh, emerging space, space commercialization. So this was a proposal that we put in, I think in 2014 to NASA, it's taken quite a while, uh, to, uh, to bring together uh, science fiction writers, space scientists, social scientists to explore the near-term future of public-private space partnerships. And the proposal was to do this as a set of narrative scenarios, AKA science fiction stories, uh, but the kind of science fiction that we do at the Center for Science and the Imagination. So these are technically grounded science fiction stories that don't involve a lot of uh, you know, magic and hand-waving uh, and where we ask everybody involved to do the sort of weird thing of work with people from very different backgrounds, like uh, having the writers work directly with scientists and engineers having uh, and having social scientists involved as well. So that was the, pr the initial project. And uh, the book uh, came out uh, in December. We're very excited. Uh, Andrew just gave you the title. So now I don't have to say it. Um, and uh, what we tried to do in this book was to uh, to talk a little bit about the the methods from from the project and I'm very curious to hear Andrew and Madeline what you thought of this we we structured the conversations uh, for those collaborations a little more explicitly than we have in the past so we actually had sort of thematic small groups that had usually a couple of writers and a few different researchers involved in them uh, around the, th the themes of the book. The book is divided into four sections, uh, low Earth orbit, Mars, asteroids, and exoplanets. Um, and the idea was to still have a relatively small conversation, but in to invite more people in. And the other explicit change uh, this time around is that we had uh, social scientists and sort of technical experts in space science and, and engineering involved uh, because we have this real focus on the book is really about the economics of space more so than the technical challenges and I can talk more about that as we get into it so so that's what we have done so so Madeline you were one of these authors um, and I know I came in a little later so we didn't have a, a lot of deep interaction but did you mm -hmm. work with others on the team as you develop your story and your ideas? Yeah um, I ended up uh, talking with um, both Lauren Stritzis um, in, about sort of the history of colonization um, and also Jacob Keaton at uh, NASA a great deal. Jacob was a Jacob and his team were a very very good resource and uh, and I actually liked him so much and I thought that he was so well spoken and so articulate and so so friendly that I actually had him speak to my students at OCAD University in Toronto. Um, they, I was teaching a course in science fiction film and I said, hey, do you want to talk to somebody who helps people get to space? <laughs> and they, uh, uh, they, they were enthusiastic and, and wanted to know more and it was great. So, so your short story, um, Death on Mars, I, if I remember this correctly, I'm sure I saw something in your Twitter stream about you uh, feeling it was one of the best things you've written recently. 
Um, um, yeah, well, it was, what surprised me is that um, it was, we put it out in December, and, and normally, like, if you're getting, if you want to be considered for any kind of award or anything like that, you have to put something out earlier. Um, and the, the schedule just accommodated December. But immediately I was, I was contacted by two different anthologists who said, hey, can we put this in our year's best anthology? Wow. And, and, and so, yeah, so I was quite pleased. And, and in reading over it again, I was like, I really felt as though I, you know, had sort of done something that I hadn't done before in a in a story so that's that it really it was very special to me for for those reasons and, and how much of that was influenced by the process either directly or even indirectly even well it was it was it's a it's very intimidating when you get a call <laughs> like this and and it's and it's hey do you want to write a story for nasa that nasa will read and with their money and it's it's a impossible to say no and b um, you you have to you know you then are very intimidated by by the the people who will be reading it and you want to get everything right and you want to also represent their goals and what they have done in the established science in a thoughtful way. Mm-hmm. I think that as an agency, um, it can be very easy for them to sort of be misrepresented and for people to not know what they're doing um, and and not know what their goals are and not know about the sort of thought process that goes into all of their work. Um, one of the things that I came away with was the sense that these are probably the most prepared people on the planet, that they understand how things like, you know, how preparation works, how, how you make contingency plans for something that will never occur, that you hope will never occur. Um, even down to how they understand things like consent, where we've had a lot of conversations in the recent past in the culture about consent. To go on a mission, you, every team has to agree to every step of the process. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and stuff. so go, no, go actually, you know, takes on this whole other meaning. And, and so when we think about how NASA runs things, I really wanted to be faithful to the, you know, the rigor uh, that they bring to, to all of their processes. Um, and, uh, and it, you know, in a story like this about getting cancer in space, you know, I really wanted to talk about health and privacy and all kinds of stuff like that. Um, and it was fascinating to me that so much of this already had a contingency plan around it. So we should um, get you to say a little bit about the, the plot line here, because I think a lot of that <clears throat> really clearly comes through as you explore those different aspects. Yeah, um, so Death on Mars is a story about um, an all-female team of, of astronauts who are um, orbiting, uh, who are uh, on uh, Phobos trying to um, trying to pilot or piloting um, drills on Mars that will eventually create a subterranean hab, like a habitat. Um, and so they're an all-female team to test out the idea of all-female teams. And I got that idea because you know, Russian space agencies were already at work on it. On it. Um, sending all women is actually cheaper, not just because women are traditionally paid less, but because, <laughs> um, but because they use less oxygen and less food and less energy. So calorically, energy-wise, oxygen-wise, weight-wise, it's all less. Like you can, you can really save a significant amount of energy if you send women. 
Um, and, uh, and so, so I, I immediately sort of glommed on, onto that idea. And then I thought, well, obviously there has to be conflict, so you have to send a guy. And why would you send somebody? Well, someone dies. Well, what, what if they're not dead? And then what if, you know, what if they have cancer? And do you, are you under, do you have an obligation to tell people if you're sick? Mm-hmm. And that was a fascinating thing to me, that you might be ill, but in such close quarters that you could hide it from, from people. And what would it mean to team cohesion? A lot of the time we talk about, you know, uh, what if something traumatic happens to a team? And there's a lot of simulation and there's a lot of practice that goes into um, getting a team together for a long-haul mission or for, or for the ISS, um, where there's a huge process of evaluating people psychologically and testing them in teams together to see if they can work together. Um, and, I, you know, when we talk about you know, space madness or whatever, you know, it's always this hyper-dramatic thing when, in fact, it can be something as simple as cancer. And I was thinking about it a lot because in the time that I was writing it, I actually lost three different friends to cancer. Oh, I wow. watched three different wow. friends die. And and they were the process of that is not quick. It's not fast. And there are times for these conversations and there are is sort of dark humor and there is, you know, conversations about what did, what did I what am I here to do? What do I want to do with the time that I have left? And uh, and stuff. And I really thought that, you know, it's really easy to tell a story about exploration or or something like that about, you know, dying heroically because of, you know, you know, some challenge that is imposed by the environment. But there's also just going there and just and dying because it's your time, because, you know, your cells have aligned in that particular way. Um, So I really wanted to talk about um, about a team member who is hiding her illness from everybody and the the emo- the sort of emotional fallout of that uh and what it means for for cohesion and 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 whether or not they can still be a team so after I, that. I i find that so interesting when i was reading the, the the piece and this comes out in the essay that i i wrote based on it this idea of of the right to die on your own terms especially when it's complicated by being part of such a tight-knit team where everybody depends so much on everybody else, both emotionally as well as with the work that they do. Um, And I actually found that there were some really quite deep layers in in that, and it actually got you thinking about sort of where do those rights begin and end? Mm -hmm. Well, I actually talked, uh, I talked with uh, Jacob, again, with Jacob Keaton, who who helps um, talk about the ISS. about that and I said well okay so you know what happens what are you know what if I what if I need to talk to a therapist while I'm in space and what if I want to talk to my doctor how confidential is that and he said well you have a private phone you have a private phone line and it's never observed and the same it's the same phone line that you use to call home and and your privacy is still protected and I said really and he said yeah and and um and the there's this very special balance um that they try to preserve where so much of your privacy living in a tin can with people is, is negated. Like you lose so much of your own personal space and you lose so much of your own personal time. Um, but the idea that your communications and, and what's going on inside the shell of your body should still be private to you uh, is very important. And I found that tension really, really, really interesting. And I wanted to sort of explore and navigate that a little bit more. I loved in your story, Madeline, how, uh, the, it, it, these people flying around in space, really the drama all centers around the things they're bringing with them from home, right? And this mm-hmm. the 
privacy, the the right to choose the, the sort of the manner of your death and how you're going to communicate with people about it, and then all of the other sort of incidental plot points of, of uh, the other characters who have relationships with their families back home, and like the the data archive with all of the baseball games on it. You know, there are all of these uh, ways in which what makes our habitation in space really interesting is not the technical side of it, but all of the social stuff where you have to work out at one, all over again, all of our social rules and mores and, you know, relationships with one another. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that there's a real tendency, both in science fiction and, and, and in historical fiction and other things, to, and, and in the just sort of the current discourse, to imagine that going to Mars or going to any other planet will be this massive fresh start. And we believed that about colonizing North America, and it wasn't. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> it wasn't a fresh start, uh, and it and and it involved the systematic genocide of, of you know millions of people. So the you know the the idea that you know you get you take you know you take what you bring with you, or you you what's there is what you bring with you, and you don't always have a choice in what you bring with you um, was was important to me they kind of i like playing with that notion of like you can run to the edge of the known universe but you're still you madeline i'm really interested to know um because i think a lot of the thing that we a lot of the societal value that we place in the genre of science fiction is that it allows us to clarify our thinking in our place and time you know in a on earth uh, and in well today 2018 like how did particularly since you were stepping through an experience with people in your life who you were losing to cancer how did the experience of you know writing science fiction about cancer and dying did did you find that it helped you to clarify how you think about it in your own life um I think I was fairly clear about it but when I started, I felt a, a certain type of clarity when I started. I didn't have a certain, I didn't have clarity about how I was going to finish the story, as Ed will tell you. But the, um, <laughs> I felt uh, clear in sort of the values that I was going to bring to the story. But what, what watching that happen to my friends did, what what observing that process did, was sort of um, it clarified for me like all the the kind of tiny indignities and moments of grace that we can have in the midst of suffering mm-hmm. and and how people lean on each other and lean away from each other in those moments that they need something that they can control and so much about you know being in that type of environment in space is about you know trying to maintain control in the face of this void and that's also what dying is right mm-hmm. is is trying to maintain control in the face of this howling emptiness and um, and so, I, I I was able to bring in more details certainly, and and a greater appreciation of of those things. In terms of, I guess science fiction, I I hadn't really thought about it. I guess in science fiction, there's a there's definitely this meme towards preserving life that that all life should be preserved all the time. And that you know we that death is a, that the death is just an illness or a disease, and that we should be able to prolong life indefinitely, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't believe that. Um, as a writer, I believe in endings, um, and that endings create meaning. Um, 
And so I wanted to sort of explore the idea of, like, of you know, what death could mean and how death could be meaningful for for someone, even in the face of having all these potential augmentations and, and uh, um, you know, all these ways out. You know, throughout the story, there, this uh, Donna, the woman who has cancer, is offered a significant number of therapies and, like, all these different sort of ways that she could try to survive. And that's not the life or the death that she wants. That's not what she wants to do. She wants, she has trained her whole life to get to this place in, in the, in the light of Mars. And she isn't going to leave even if it kills her. And, and that's the dedication that you see when you talk to astronauts, when you talk to people who are in the training, when you, when you, you know, when you read the histories of, of astronauts, it is that level of dedication and nothing less. So I, I, what I find particularly interesting here is, even though this is a science fiction story, I think a lot of readers will actually see deep resonances in it, in their own lives and their own situations. So again, it, it's this idea of using the future to reflect on where we actually are and the way we actually think about our lives. Um, and to me, that came through very clearly. Oh, well, thank you. Um, I do try to, te I do personally, I try to, and artistically, I try to ask, you know, you know, the story is set in the future, but what are the eternal questions that it is trying to ask yeah. or answer? Or what are the eternal questions that it is trying to complicate? How can we complicate this question or add more nuance to it in, yeah. in the future? Yeah. So, I, so I've got to ask, because I, we had the chuckle from Ed when you talked about not being quite sure where the... <laughs> so, so how did this process work? This sounds like a process where you're collaborating with others, not quite sure where the story is going to go. Well, do you want to, so do you want to take the, the first part of the Madeline and then I'll, I can talk about, you know, the, like phase two when we get into editing. Yep. Right. Uh, well, I guess um, in... You know, there were there were multiple drafts of the story, and it was a hard story to finish. In part because it was so emotional, I think. Like there was, it was just when I finally finished it, I was I was in tears, and it was it was just really really tough. And um, and so it was a long process, but it was also a long process in terms of the project deadlines moved, like you know things changed, which is also the nature of of any long term creative endeavor. Um, so that's that's not unusual. But um, we were, you know, the, the process of, well, okay, I think that the story is about this, and I think this is the person who's telling it, and I think that, um, that this is the final upshot of it, but how do we put a story in there? You know, these are the things that it's about. How do we put a story in there? And that's, that was very difficult for me, um, in part because of the other issues that were sort of obscuring it, and it took a while to sort of latch in and create a big beginning, middle, and end. Um, you know, uh, but that was, but that's also, you know, that's just part and parcel of the job. Yeah, I remember uh, talking with you about the story, Madeline, and talking <laughs> with Joey about it as we edited it, that, that same process. And I think this is common, uh, that, that uh, especially in science fiction, that you begin with a few ideas and the story starts to coalesce around them. And so uh, in this case, I think that the process ended up being picking which idea was the most important. And I remember yeah. talking with you about that, and we sort of settled on this this notion of of death and space is actually the most important story, uh, and you know that, that that becomes the central focus. Uh, and then you, that ends up kind of shaping and defining a lot of the other 
writing and editing decisions, you know, I remember talking a lot with you and thinking about, well, how do we get this guy out here? You know, to yeah. us, right? Why <laughs> is he there? Is yeah, there? what's what's a plausible explanation for why he needs to show up at this time? You know, and thinking through all of the, the, the you, you end up doing a lot of sort of uh, plot mechanics kind of stuff, uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and actually that you know this this kind of story, which is it's a it's a uh, I don't know what the right sort of genre term of art is but it's it's a narrative that depends on a set of technical constraints right they are all out here together and we have to work within those constraints and that's part of what makes the the death narrative compelling and interesting mm-hmm. um, and so you have to you have to sort of attend to all of that stuff uh but you know throughout there was this very palpable emotional through line um and uh i found that you, you know that, that was already always sort of a, a motivator uh, from the beginning. And it was just a question of making sure that we were s- adding to that and, and not distracting from it. So Ed, you did something, well, you said a bunch of things that were really interesting, but one thing that I want to just pull out a little bit, you said, you know, this, this genre where we have to be technically accurate, but it's still fiction. Like, is that a genre or is this your contribution to the world because this is not something that we've codified in a particular way before? Well, I think there are people who would argue that this is, there's a subgenre of science fiction that this is part of. Uh, so some people call that so-called hard science fiction. Uh, or, and I'm, I'm not sure that I, I don't especially like that term, uh, but there are you might, you know, there's a spectrum when it comes to technical accuracy, right? And some people are are really interested in writing technically grounded science fiction. Uh, they're interested in writing near future fiction. They're interested in getting into long descriptions of technical details, you know. Uh, and on the other end of the spectrum, there are people who don't really worry about that. They're more interested in narrative. Uh, there's a a point at which science fiction starts to approach fantasy or, you know, there are other kinds of sort of magical stuff happening. And uh, I think what's maybe the, the spin that we put on it at, at the, at our, at our center, what we're trying to do is, is write things that are technically grounded, but also open up possibilities in thinking about near term human futures. You know, every story doesn't have to be a blueprint for a world that we want to inhabit, but it should be uh, a thought experiment that pushes people to think about what we really do want to happen. So we may not want to inhabit the particular fictional universe that's described in one of our stories, but hopefully by sort of stepping into that world, you'll think differently about the world as it is today and and where we want to go. Uh, Getting back to Andrew's point before about how this is a this is a you know a space story, but it has lots of different uh, threads and, and things in common with with life as it is today here on Earth. So, Ed, from from that perspective, what was the thinking at NASA for really um, paying for this and and supporting it? What were they hoping to get out of it? So, I think there are a few different things they're hoping to get out of it. One of them is uh, the the, the the very useful function that science fiction has of, of stepping out of the technical detail and offering a more holistic vision of the future. And that's where really great science fiction, wherever it lies on that spectrum of sort of technically grounded to more fantastical, uh, what it can do really well is, is give you not just 
uh, one particular technology, but a whole world, right? So it's not just a blueprint of a new device. It's like, well, what room of the house is device going to go in? How is it actually going to work? And how is it going to make people feel when they use it? What happens when you introduce real human characters, or at least humanoid characters? And that is very useful for us because we are social beings, we're storytelling animals, and we need to have that narrative context in order to grapple with the the broader social, moral, uh, you know, societal implications of new tech. So, uh, so, so I think NASA was interested in that, especially in the context of public and private partnerships, because NASA understands its own mission, technical capabilities, its own interests very well. They're very clearly ex explicated. The NASA website is this incredibly deep archive of everything that NASA knows. Uh, but things get more complicated when you start talking about commercialization, uh, private companies, and that inevitably leads to the market, which is a sort of nebulous, uh, broader social construct, and then public opinion, uh, the broader question of what space is actually for, why we're going there. And so stories are very important to frame this whole discussion about what we're going to do in space in that larger context. So I think that's the, the most important thing NASA was interested in. And then they were also interested in that, not just for communicating with broader publics, but also communicating internally at NASA, because as with universities, as with many other organizations, people become so specialized and so focused on their little technical areas that it becomes a little bit harder to look at that big picture and stories are very effective at uh, framing policy discussions and the what should we do rather than just the what can we do dialogues. So I have to ask, were the folks at NASA pleased? Uh, I think so. Uh, you know, they, they, they seem pleased uh, informally, uh, but you'd have to ask them. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, that I think that overall, uh, it's been a really interesting learning process. And of course, the, the, the research project is not just this book, right? Um, we're actually conducting interviews now. You probably, uh, Andrew and, and Madeline have probably both done them already or, or have been contacted about doing those. So we want to write up a, a methods paper, or maybe more than one around this collaborative process and the the sort of the how the, the how of you of bringing people together across these very different perspectives and disciplines to come up with these narratives. Uh, so uh, so the work continues. So you know we have to wait until we we we've turned all of our homework in before NASA can tell yeah. us how we did. And, and I must say, just from my perspective, I found this. Tremendously exciting. I both so I, I wrote about both Madeline's story and, and one of the others, and it genuinely helped me work through a, a number of things I've been working through with how to think about risk and, and how to um, encapsulate it in different ideas. So even as an academic, this was a very useful exercise. But on top of that, um, I must confess I don't usually end up reading the things that end up in a compilation of, of essays that I contribute to. But I have in this case. I've actually. <laughs> <laughs> and I think well, that's, that, that in itself is a testament to, to how effective this was. That's that's two different victory conditions for me. So that's really nice to hear. Uh, one of the reasons we bring people together in these collaborations is hopefully so that they shift their perspectives or learn something new, ask new questions about their own work. Uh, and then also that we've created something that's exciting and engaging. So that's really nice to hear. And I'll just mention uh, 
that I think it really is an excellent collection and not only Madeline's, but two other stories from, I think there are seven altogether, uh, were also uh, selected for different year's best collections. So uh, there's been a really, and again, you know, very late breaking in December. So there's been a, a lot of enthusiasm for the book so far. That's wonderful. So as we wrap up, you know, Madeline, we talked about Ed's working on, you know, the methods piece of this. What did this experience offer you in terms of, you know, how you think about your work and how it might evolve going forward? Um, I think for me, it was, it was a way, it was an entry point into inserting more personal uh, detail into my work. You know, there's there's definitely a contingent of some science fiction writers, or not writers, or some science fiction readers, um, and there's overlap between the two, so I don't know. But uh, but there are definitely readers who don't want that level of sort of feeling and emotion and, and so on in a hard science fiction story or in a more technically grounded science fiction story. They're there for the sort of technical thought experiment. And I have always felt that, you know, if you're just there for the thought experiment, you could just develop a series of PowerPoint slides. You don't need to <laughs> tell a story. You know, what's the point? Why should I waste my, my energy creating a, a whole narrative thread when, you know, clearly all you're there for are the schematics? Um, so, but in this case, because it was so personal to me, I was a little bit reticent to be that vulnerable in the process. Um, and yet when I finally allowed myself to be, it was, you know, the, the dividends were obvious, like the appreciation that people had for it was very obvious. And so it was sort of a, it was sort of a lesson to me in that way. That's wonderful. Thank you. Well, thank you both for sharing this experience. I, I love that Center for Science and the Imagination is pushing these boundaries and bringing art and science together in this very, you know, particular and forward looking and presently grounded way. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. And yes, we'll thank you so much. And we'll post the link to the book on the website. Absolutely. Free, <laughs> free to download, come check it out. Uh, we'd love to get more people reading it and talking about it. Awesome, thank you. For more where that came from, check out the School for the Future of Innovation and Society at sfis.asu.edu. Future Out Loud is produced with the support of the School for the Future of Innovation and Society and the Risk Innovation Lab at ASU. Mark Van Hare created our music. Esmeralda Parker is our production assistant. Our website is futureoutloud.org. Subscribe to Future Out Loud on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you get your fine podcasts.